All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to Oilers Nation Radio, presented by the Nation Network. Subscribe for free on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. What's up, Oilers fans? Welcome to another edition of Oilers Nation Radio. If you're a little confused right now, because usually it's bagged milk starting things off on the podcast, we're doing things a little bit differently today. They're upgrading the power at Nation HQ, so we actually don't have the ability to record a brand spanking new podcast, which is all right. We're still going to give you some content. We're doing a best of episode today. I got three things lined up for you over the next couple of hours here, and usually best of episodes get a bit of a groan, but this is why I love them. Send these to your friends who haven't listened before. This is a great chance to kind of get in on all the inside jokes, get the best content that you've missed through 20 plus episodes. You're all caught up then, and you can keep on rolling with the podcast. If you have been listening to the podcast since day one, then this is a chance to relive memories. Who doesn't love reliving memories? I'm not going to waste any more of your time, though. Let's get right into it. First up on the docket, um, I should mention coming up, we got two interviews and one about 30-minute argument that the guys had that is just tremendous when I went back and listened to it. But we're going to start with one of the interviews, and it's with a player who was probably, not probably, he was a bit of a polarizing presence when he was with the Oilers. Here is the guy's chat with Rob Shrimp. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 24 of Oilers Nation Radio. Today, we've got a very special guest with us on the podcast over the phone. You'll remember him. He was a 25th overall pick from the 2004 draft. Mr. Rob Shrimp, thanks for being here with us today. Hey guys, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Appreciate having your time. Um, I know that you you've retired from hockey recently, and we were curious. I want to start things off by talking to you by what you're up to now. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm working with the cannabis oil company, CBD oil company, named Veda Sport is our sport line. Um, and it's uh, as I was leaving the game, um, a lot. Of, I had to take a lot of things to kind of stay at the level I, I needed to compete, which is sleeping pills, anti-inflammatories. 
uh, pain medicines, a lot of these things, muscle relaxers. Um, I just found that it, really got to, it was kind of excessive in some point. Um, and really, what, and as I left, I needed to use this CBD oil. I had some issues with anxiety and stuff. So I started taking this oil, and it really had a huge impact on my life. Um, really believed in it. I mean, as an athlete, we get a lot of those products brought to us. As soon as someone makes a product, they usually bring it to the pro athlete. So, I mean, I, we've all had plenty of uh, research and development with certain things, and this thing really actually helped with my anxiety a lot in my sleeping issues. So, uh, for say, last year, I took sleeping pills for like six months straight. I just couldn't sleep without it. Uh, got kind of hooked on it, and then now I haven't, since I've been taking CBD, I haven't taken a sleeping pill in, in almost a year. So, it's just really helped me get off of certain things and get balanced out my life. So that's where I'm at with this company, trying to spread the word and help guys uh, grab a hold of something a little bit more natural, more positive than, you know, the normal uh, sleepers and opioids. So uh, that's my mission right now, and that's what I'm looking forward to in the future with my life. Uh, what, what kind of challenges are you facing with this new project? Is it a matter of just kind of getting people on board with a new way of thinking, or, or, or what challenges are you facing right now with this? Yeah, so it's just an educational process with maybe a little bit of older generation where everybody kind of thinks it's uh, um, getting stoned is per se or, you know, the words they use with marijuana, you're stoned or you're getting high. Uh, CBD oil is exactly not getting high at all. Um, there's no THC. And in the, in the one that the one has a little bit of THC that's literally such a small amount, that, but it's so necessary for the cannabinoids to, to be transferred. So it's like very, it needs to be in there, but you would never get, you couldn't get high off it, I don't, you know. And make it it take a massive amount too. So um, our stigma is really to get get rid of that stigma. Um, you got to get rid of the it's the educational process right now. Uh, but we sponsor the National Women's Hockey League, so we have Olympic athletes and professional women athletes taking our product and really having uh, some great benefits. So it's it, we're kind of building pretty good here. It's just a matter of educating, trying to get it to the right people, and uh, you know, really send the message of like I said, I played last year, so I really still understand what. <laughs> takes to be a pro hockey player. I saw, you know, sleeping pills are really prominent. It's just, they are. Unfortunately, it's a sticky conversation, but um, if you can find something that's more sustainable and has the same, you know, impact that helps you get to bed and get you rested so you can be a pro athlete, it's probably better to go the sustainable, you know, natural way. That's my opinion anyways. I mean, some people might say, screw you, I'm going to take sleepers anyways, but that's, you know, as long as I can educate them and give them that stuff, we have a cool product. Um, really cool company. Marvin Degon is on board with our company. He played 10 years. And his wife is the founder of the company, Tara Burke. So these people are, are trying to change the world in a really cool way. And I've jumped on that board and that mission and trying to help the, help the people. Rob, are you happy with the speed of the process of educating players and former players about CBD oils um, and other products? Or you think we're a, we're a long way from bringing it like 100% into the game and, and the athletes? Or where do you think we are with that? Say that again. I'm sorry. I couldn't really hear you clearly. Do you think uh, Do you think we're moving quickly to educating all of the players and former athletes about CBD oils and other products like that, or do you think there there are still a lot of roadblocks to beat? Um, I think it's moved, the, the the momentum is moving on its own, so it's education is coming at free at per se. I think it's just a big message now, um, and I think the, I think the opioids have become such a message now that nobody can be deaf to it. Uh, it's a very you know it's, it hit, it hit, it's, it's close to too many people's homes. My dad has had a bad back for 25 years, so he's been on opioids for a long time. I really, he's had such a positive reaction to CBD oil. Um, the opioids are screaming it, right? So they need help. 
people are very getting addicted. There's a lot of heroin problems. Uh, so there's a new, the population needs something to help it, you know, and that's really where we're trying to come in. And I'm not saying that we can take away all that, but if there's, like I'm saying, certain things like sleeping pills, pain medicines, if you can have something else, alternative, an option, um, it's, I think the education's coming there. It really is. People really understand it now. Um, just because of the opioids. That's my opinion. Rob, one thing that you've uh, talked about since you retired and one thing you've advocated about a lot is the awareness of uh, mental health among uh, professional players. How big is the difference now in regards to the stigma around mental health than it was when you turned pro back in the mid-2000s? Coming a long way, but it's also a long way away, in, in my opinion. I think, I think, uh, you know, my scenario alone, I, I didn't get to, unfortunately, get signed to another contract because I took antidepressants. Um, that's I don't want to divulge too much into that story. It's still a little raw, but because I finally came out, and I mean, I got, I was diagnosed with high anxiety and depression. I've had depression since I was a kid. I mean, I've had some pretty extreme situations. I understand depression. I've had it for a long time, but, um, kind of got pushed out. And so that happened in a really raw, I mean, that's today's age. So if that's still kind of going on, then I guess I really looked at it and I said, that's enough of hockey. Maybe I should go on a path of figuring out how to help this not be that way. Um, that's where I'm at now. And we'll see what happens, what comes up. But like I said, that foundation is very important. I mean, I want to try to reach out to other guys and if they're going through what I was going through or, you know, See if we can find some help for him, um, some balance per se. And that's what I found with Vader. I had depression issues and I just, I found that I had, when I started taking on a daily basis, I felt like I was, I had way more happy days and way more balanced days than I did about thinking about, you know, not being around anymore. So I really believe in the stuff a lot. I mean, it helped me a ton. So I want to take that. And if there's people with mental health, see if they can't get, you know, some help here, some balance. Uh, I keep saying that word, but that word is really what I feel. I feel balanced out from what I used to go through. Um, so, and I'm trying to get, you know, the other thing is if I don't have, if you can do that naturally, that's the most important thing. That's what I, I have found. I've taken all the medicines. I took Xanax so I can take care of my anxiety, uh, antidepressants and these kind of things, you know? So I understand all the medicines. So that's the thing unique for me as well. as kind of a test study. I, I took all the stuff and realized what their powers are and what their, you know, pros and cons are. Um, and I'm also on a natural product. That's like, it's taking all that stuff away. So it's, it's really, powerful to me what do you think that the, just the everyday public can do to kind of help further the conversation rob i think it's like we talk a lot about bell let's talk day but the unfortunate part yeah. is that's only one day of the year and there's obviously a lot more that we can be doing day to day what do you think that just you know a guy like me or cam or chris sitting around that what can we do to further the conversation I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. I, I'm kind of just, I, I got, I just got my uh, confidence to speak about this literally in the last like eight months as, as somebody had started talking about my issues for me. Um, that really made me upset. So now what I've done is like, screw it. I'll finally admit it. When I first got diagnosed with depression, I literally, the first thing I said, I don't know why, but I reacted to this way. I said, please don't say anything to anybody. <laughs> I don't know why. It was just like, I was so embarrassed, but like, why? I don't know. I had to tell the doctor, so like, please don't say anything. I don't know why that stigma is. And then I knew, like, if I had to take an antidepressant, if people would hear that, like, 
I didn't want I don't want the sympathy and I don't want the attention. I don't. I really don't. I don't need people coming up and they hear that I take an antidepressant. They're like, you know, are you okay, buddy? Or like the other side of it, like, am I crazy? You know what I mean? It's just an attention that's that's weird attention. Nobody knows how to handle it. So I don't know. I just for me being having this issue, I, I'm no different. I just have there's some days that I have a struggle and I deal with it, you would never even know. But there's some days you act, you know, like I'm obviously fighting, fighting that battle. I'm probably not going to be the same person as when you saw me the day before. You know what I mean? Like the day before, I was happy as hell. I wanted, I loved everything. But when you have depression, it comes over, you have no control over them anymore. So you now you're fighting your own demon. You might seem like grumpy, like it's kind of a dick. But like people don't know what's really bad on, you know? So it's important. Now I've realized that it's important to be open about it because you may have, might have no idea why I'm being such a dick today. <laughs> You know, and it's not fair for me to expect that for people around me. So I need to be more open and just say, sorry, guys, like, you know, I have bad days. I hope you can accept it. And if you can't, then I guess I'll just try to stay away, right? Like, okay, what else can you do? But if you're open about it, at least people can respect it and look at it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's interesting like, to hear. I don't know. I'm just kind of freewheeling. I, like I said, I'm just new to being okay with saying I have to try. I really am. Just someone else started talking about it, so I was like, Screw it. If they're going to talk about it, I might as well. So mm-hmm. here I am going to advocate for it and see what I can do to help that community and also maybe learn more about myself in some sense. No, that's awesome that you're doing that. And it's, it's good to hear your thoughts and opinions on it. Um, you played quite a few seasons overseas in Europe and the KHL. Uh, my question for you is, is uh, did you notice a significant uh, different kinds of pressure playing in North America compared to Europe? in the European leagues? Um, I, yeah, they're definitely different pressures, but they're not, I, I'd say the amount of pressure is not much different. As far as like the, the, the cycle, different pressure points, right? Like over here, you're kind of threatened with, you're get sent down to the minors or, you know, there's the next guy biting at your heels where over there, you're like, if I don't score, they're going to fire me. Um, different pressures. But like I said, they're both heavy pressures and like, you know, that's a, tough load to carry for both sides, but they're just different pressures. So looking at your hockey DB page, you played in a lot of different countries, a lot of different teams, a lot of different leagues. And I'm wondering if there was ever just a time where you could just sit and relax and enjoy the experience of what was happening, or was it always a lot of pressure because you were always trying to keep a gig, trying to fight for the next gig? Yeah, no, I, I literally, honestly, it's, it's not just, your question's a little bit tough to say there's no positive. There's a, not that you said it like that, but like there's a lot of positives out of it. But I mean, like you asked, I didn't get to relax for like a decade. For 10 years, I had to fight every summer and worry about training camp and worry about actually finding my, or like first impression. In Europe, it was about first impression. It was no longer like worrying about training camp, but then I had to worry about first impressions. For like five years in a row, I had to make first impressions on everybody. I'm like, and then for some reason, like, you know, I just always floated around. I had this horrible attitude in hockey, so that just kept floating around. I, I got to, like, two or three different teams where, like, a month into the season, the guys was like, oh, a shrimp, you're not a dick. You're just, like, Stifler. Or, like, you're just, like, funny. I'm like, yeah. I didn't realize I was a dick, but <laughs> I was like, okay. But, like, you know what I mean? Like, I had already had a pre, pre-existent, whatever. Like, I just, they already had an opinion, so... I was. I just felt like I was. Every time I felt like I was fighting against it, every every new place I went, it just sucked. I'm like, why am I like always defending my character of some sort? Like, it was frustrating. So I didn't really enjoy. No, I didn't really enjoy it because 
it wasn't, I just didn't get to be myself. I had to feel like I had to put on some show because people thought I was such a shithead. Of all the places you played in your career, I guess you kind of touched on a little bit when you said it was a struggle that decade bouncing around from team to team, but where would you say your best memories are rooted playing hockey? Definitely London, Ontario. I mean, it was sick. We had so much fun. We just really, it just all clicked. You know, we had such great, great hockey, great hockey. Like we just, every night was so much fun. Hockey, like we played well together, you know, just hockey. Whenever hockey's going well, my life is, I'm the happiest. And that was the happiest because we won all the time and hockey was sick. Um, what, a, what a team. And three years of it too. I mean, First year I got there, I, I wasn't in the greatest grace with the coaching staff. I had to earn my spot. So, but that we still only lost. I think it was the first year I was there, we lost fourteen games. The second year I was there, we lost five games the whole year, and then two in playoffs, so seven total. Then the third year I was there, we lost eleven games total. So, a lot of winning and a lot of fun. We hear a lot about, like, right now the Oilers have Evan Bouchard in London, and we hear about how the London Knights are a culture of professionalism. What is it about that junior organization that helps churn out so many players? They just teach you how to win. It's like everything's to win. It doesn't matter. And don't get in the way of them trying to win. Like you're either on the ship or you're in the way. Get out of the way. That's how you say You're in, you're in the way. And those guys, and the thing is with Mark and Dale, they really know hockey and they know players. So they don't, they know like that they, if they, if they push game to shove, they can find another you, for sure. Mark has a great eye for talent, and Dale has a great coach. You can see who's going to help his, you know, philosophies. So they're really smart hockey people. So, they're, you know, they're never really back into the corner. They give them players. They are literally the type of organization that's given players a very good opportunity to step into a role and show NHL people what they can do in that role because Dale runs the bench, in my opinion, exactly the way the NHL's played. And that's what the, the thing is. Dale's he sees the game very well. So he starts changing his structures towards the way the NHL is. They watch a ton of NHL. So he's trying to mold NHL players. And if you get to London, you get a chance to play there, they're going to put you in a role where they see, they think they can see you playing the NHL. So as you probably know, the Oilers recently fired their GM, Peter Chiarelli, and one name that's come up through media fan speculation is to replace Chiarelli in the GM role is Mark Hunter. Do you like? Do you think he yeah. could translate the level of success he's seen in the OHL with London, which is just like unbelievable, like how good they've been consistently since he's been there, to an NHL organization like Edmonton? I I, I think Mark is a, I think Mark, in my opinion, Mark Hunter is a, is, a, is a genius, like a hockey genius, and um, I think it's important that he has. His word, his I think his word needs to be the most powerful one in the room because he's right. He watches, and that's the thing. When when Mark has an opinion on something, it's because he's seen it. And he understands it. It's not a guess. It's not a, a job protection comment. He says it how he means it, and that's that. I think that's good. I think very bluntly, he's honest, and he come. I remember playing London. He come down the room, and when you were playing like shit, he let you know that's not good enough, Shrimpy. Not good enough. He'd walk by and just say that's horseshit, and you and it, it was like. You're, every time he did that, he was right. If, okay, if you're a player that can take honesty, he was right. If you're a player that wants to get mad because GM came down and said something to you, then you're, I don't think you're right. Like When Mark came down and told you you were playing like shit, you were. And it'd be wise for you to take a look in the mirror and change your ways. So he was on it. Like He knows the beat. He knows the beat of the team. He knows the beat of the players. He knows, he knows a lot because he watches and he loves it. That's what he loves to do. 
he could he doesn't need to be doing this. He could literally I mean, they're doing well in London. He could he could relax. But he loves hockey that much. So I give a lot my a lot of respect to Mark and Dale and I think a lot of them. I, I don't want to put a ton of pressure on him if he does get the Edmonton job. Not that I am, but I I think highly of him. That's my opinion of Mark Hunter. And I think he would do great things anywhere he goes. He was really good in uh, Toronto in the short time he had there and he's been uh, over the last 15 years in London, he's killed it. He's done very good in the market. That's tough. These are kids that are 16 to 20. So your windows are a lot smaller to be right on guys. As, as we're, since we're talking about management, what qualities as like a guy like yourself, that's been a pro player for so long, what qualities in a manager are important as fans? We don't get to see the ins and outs of what's going on with organizations, but as somebody who's talked to these guys, who's dealt with them, what qualities do you think would be important for like a team like the Oilers that's looking like for a new manager? What qualities in a manager would be important for them to bring in? I think important. it's very important the general manager's vision for the players, and he needs to say that to the players. Not My, my opinion, okay, don't, don't get me wrong, and I don't think that I'm any better than anybody. I'm, not, I'm just saying what I think. So I would just think that the, the GM would portray what his vision is with the team to the team, to the players, let them know how they all fit into that puzzle and how to be the best in their space. If you give these people guidance and you give them spaces, here's your space, be the best in this space. If a, if a GM can do that, I don't know, maybe that's a coach's job, I don't know. But I'm just saying, if each person in the organization knows not only hockey players, but everybody, everybody has a piece in them. You know, the, to the experience at the London Knights hockey game, it's not – just because Mark and Dale are smart with the hockey, they also know how to put on a show. Like, they're entertaining people. As businessmen, take him away from the how brilliant I think is the hockey guy. Now take him as a businessman. Think about the show they put on in London. It's unbelievable. 9100 every night for the last 15 I mean, it's a great show. They got in-between sh- uh, intermission shows. Everybody knows their place in the organization. And that's smart. As a general manager, you manage everything. How do we make sales? How do we make entertainment? How do we make a great product on the ice? They have the ability to do all that. So they're very special talent, uh, the Hunter Brothers. I want to change gears for a quick second because Rob, you and I are actually pretty close to the same age. And one thing that sticks out to me about you was there was a time when the Oilers rookies were playing against the Golden Bears and they were doing a little shootout drills or whatever after the game. And you pulled off one of those lacrosse style goals where you picked it up on the puck up on your stick from the from the red line, walked it in and did like some of the craziest shit I had ever seen at that point. My question for you is now you can go on Instagram and you can kind of see like a 10 year old, a nine year old doing that on their backyard rink. Does that kind of thing blow you away? The kind of puck skills that kids have relative to kind of when you grew up? Because like I said, I remember seeing the lacrosse style move you pulled and never having seen that before. And now you can go see a 10-year-old on Instagram ripping around doing the same kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty unique. I think it's great. You know, I think it's creativity. I love I love the creativity. That's really what I enjoy most about, about all the sports, the creative side of it. How can you be creative? Okay, everybody can swing the bat. Everybody can throw the ball. Everybody can shoot the puck. How can you now do all those things to a certain level and then also make that thing entertaining for someone else to watch? So it's... it's Entertainment value is huge in sports, and that's goes. It's part of being having charisma as an athlete is knowing how that you're an entertainer. At the end of the day, if if you go out and everybody does everything the same, that's going to be boring. You're not going to have people to come watch that because people are going to get bored of it. So it's all about entertaining and having something unique. So 
Um, to have those kids kind of opening up at a young age is a lot. You know, I love to see it. It's great. I think it's cool. I think it's the kids showing that they're not just, you know, <laughs> you know, little robots. They have creativity. They have curiosities. They want to do things that are different. That's, I think that's special. It, it should also be part of the game. I think there's a lot of discipline in the game, but you also got to have some creativity. It's not uh, straight lines are not always the greatest, in my opinion. For you, where did that come from? Like for for you to work on those hands and those kind of moves, were you the kind of were you the kind of kid that was sitting in the basement, just kind of working your hands all the time? Like where did that come from for you? I mean, I was like from the time I was ten years old to fifteen, I spent. I mean, this might sound crazy, but I mean, I spent literally like eight to nine hours a day at the rink every day, every day. Literally, I just did like random things. Like I played the cross in the summertime, so. I was playing the cross, and I remember stick hand on the ball, and I was like, man, you can do this with the puck. And I remember Mike seeing Mike Legg's little highlight thing where he did a pick it up, so my cousin taught me how to pick it up. And then after that, I started playing the cross. I'm like, well, I can, I think I can play the cross with the hockey stick in a puck. And I just started doing it, and then it worked. I was like, oh, that's cool. And then everybody else was like, what the hell? And I was like, <laughs> okay, I guess this is a little bit different, you know? And then it just kind of caught on. It was kind of my thing, but... I don't know. It was just fun for me. It was like mixing two sports. Like I said, I was just being creative. I played the cross, played hockey. I just was out there one day. It was like, hey, shit, I think you're going to cross cradle a hockey puck with a hockey stick. Let me try it. And it worked. Then I was like obsessed with it. It was so cool. Um, and it, yeah, it worked. It was fun to do. It just, it's fun for me. Now going out and just regularly stick handling is no longer fun because I had this curiosity of mine and I end up doing it. And now I'm obsessed with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I would do it all the time. And then sometimes people would be like, Oh, you cocky, whatever, like you hot dog. And I'm like, well, this has just become my new reality of stick handle. I can now stick handle like a lacrosse stick. Why would I not do it? Yeah, sure. So much fun. But then some people take it wrong. I mean, it really did. It It got me this label of like cocky and like, I don't know, uncontrollable, I suppose. But it's a matter of jealousy, right? Though, like you see, you have kids that have no idea how you're doing what you're doing. I remember like, like I said, you and I are roughly the same age. And I remember seeing, I was still playing at the time when I saw you doing that shit with lacrosse style. And I'm just like, I don't know. The game's over. (laughs) You, You mentioned playing lacrosse as a kid. What do you think about kids now? Like I notice... Uh, we're starting to get towards the springtime where a lot of hockey schools are being pumped out. What do you think about kids very, very specialized in hockey alone as opposed to playing hockey and lacrosse or maybe baseball or whatever else that you got up to? What do you think about the specialization of sports for kids? I don't know. I, I don't mind. I don't mind if that's what you want to do. If the kids want to do it, um, I am whatever the kid, like the individual wants to do. I, I played hockey. I played every sport until I was like 11. And then I got obsessed with hockey. And I was like, I just want to play hockey. Um, I, I had some good, you know, whatever. I, I, I was okay. I was pretty good at lacrosse, pretty good at baseball. But then hockey was like, it was just my, I enjoyed it the most. So we jumped on that board and that was my decision. So then I would play like, in the summertime, I would play like 20 tournaments. I played two tournaments a weekend sometimes with like two different teams. And that's my, I loved it. I was obsessed. So there was no like, I mean, we had no future plans when I was doing that, that was just what I wanted to do. Uh, having four kids, my family loved it because I could go away on a weekend with other hockey families. And it was great. It was one kid out of the, out of the house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have, you know, there's six of us in a family. We're living in not a big house. So, you know, that kid, and that, they were pumped. And I was also getting out to see things. I was going to Montreal, Canada. I was going to Ottawa, Canada, seeing a little bit of the world and, and also playing hockey. So it was a very cool thing. And it, that was my experience. It was never forced and it was never... 
They're never like, hey, Tommy down the streets skating 300 days a year. I better skate 301. I didn't give a shit what Tommy down the street was doing. I was just going out and having fun myself. So now that you're finished playing pro, I mean, <clears throat> you talked about the pressure of being on the one-year deals and this and that and always looking for the next job. Now that you're finished and you can just go back to playing hockey for the hell of it, just to have fun, how refreshing is that? Uh, I've really, I'm uh, like a big weight vest off my chest. To be honest with you. So you're playing... Yeah, I, I played, I jumped, I jumped on a men's league team and I, I just, I don't even... I felt bad as I retired again. The guys were like, no, we pushed you in retirement. I'm not, I just, I want to walk away from the game a little bit. And I'm more focused on, like we talked about in the beginning with Beta Sport, building a, a pretty cool vision for the future with other people and helping other people. Taking, like, I'm speaking candid in this interview, but like, I'm just telling you how I feel and how I'm going to try to change things and help other people through my experiences. So that's really where my passion is right now. And it's not towards hockey. I, I gave hockey a great go, I uh, had a lot of fun in it, met a lot of great people. Um, it was real. It was. I mean, I had some ups and downs, a lot of downs, but it taught me to be tough-skinned and keep my shit together, and a little bit of discipline. And you know, I've landed in a good spot here with Beta Sport. I have a good crew around me. I'm really excited about this team. So um, everything happens. You know, I tell you the deep stories, but like, I'm still standing here. I'm still okay, and that's the message. I had big depression. I've had anxiety issues. I've fought some pretty good fights. I've kind of made my career was shaped in a way that I didn't see happening. Other people didn't see happening. But everything happens, and I'm good. I'm still standing here, even through all the controversy. Still love life, ready to go. Every day is blessed. Love it. Well, it's great to hear that you got into that spot. You know what I mean? It's It sounds like there's been a lot of challenges that you want to walk through and that you've gotten through to this point. And we can't thank you enough for being as candid as you have in this interview. Um, and But I want to end things off by talking about Veda a little bit more and what's coming next. What's next for Veda Sport? What are you guys working on? Um, what are you pushing to achieve and how can we help use our platform to get you there? Well, yeah, Veda's great. We're using, we, like I said, we have the NWHL, so we're really using those girls also with their testimony to, you know, just to show people that these high-end athletes are okay taking the stuff and it helps them as well. The big thing is not about, for us, is whenever we give it to someone, we want that to, to help them, okay? That's the most important thing. It's not about making sure everybody's saying, I take VEDA. That's not what we're looking to do. We're looking to actually have an impact in the world. And the company that I'm, is behind VEDA is their big mission and is to reintroduce hemp back into the farming system through, you know, through dairy, through proteins. Um, so we're back to being balanced in our food. Um, the endocannabinoids in our bodies, you know, that system's being balanced out. That's our big vision. So we have a bigger picture view with the company, the big company. VEDA Sport, we're trying to get it to the athletes. And get it, like I mentioned before, so like opioids are a big deal and they are an issue. Sleepers are an issue. These kind of things we'd like to, we're not trying to, uh, some people need those things, but if you had alternatives like we do, that, like I mentioned, are, are natural, sustainable, and they hit home to all the things that you need them to, like sleep, like pain, inflammation, I think it's just a better ride, my opinion. And where and where can people get some more information if they're if they're looking to check out Veda Sport? Yeah, sorry, VedaSport.pro. Uh, www.VedaSport.pro is uh, the website, and then also www.VedaECN.com would be the wellness stuff. So there's two websites there. You can really go on there to get educated. There's a great website there. There's also like a drug interaction um, application on there. So if you're ever taking any medicine, you want to know if you can take it with CBD. It's right there as well, which is very cool. Not many other people are doing that. We want people to feel comfortable. And like I said, we're in the education process. So 
that's that's very educational for people to know what they can take and what they can't take if they can with us. So uh, if they don't have to go to a doctor, they can go right on that. That's a medical doctor uh, back check, um, health checker or medicine checker. And lastly, the last thing I want to, to touch on is you were talking about uh, advocating for mental health. Uh, is there any websites or places that people can go to check out some of that information that you were talking about as well? We're building right now, Fight Like Me, we're building the, um, whatever you want to call it, the brand marketing of it to figure out what that wants to look like. So we don't have that up yet going. I wish I did, but uh, we're just starting the conversation. As I said, we're a startup. So the foundation is going to be kind of filtered through with sales from Data Sport, and that's Something also why I want to get the initiative going with Data Sports. So one dollar for each sale, I believe, is going to the foundation, and that'll help run initiatives with the foundation or whatever, so to speak. Um, also, like I said, meet, looking to meet up with other um, foundations that um, we can collaborate with and maybe have some partnerships with. So it's all about meet, uh, meeting people, and each having the same message of helping other people. That's really where we're at, and. Uh, like I, the fight, the fight like me, we're just trying to build it up slowly. So, like I said, I, we're not ready to launch per se, but I just want to get the word out even now while I have these opportunities with your platform. I really appreciate this um, having me on and, and giving me the chance to to have uh, the ability to reach other people with my story and also with maybe uh, CBD. Well, how's this? Like when when fight like me gets going and you guys are ready to go, maybe you can. Uh, we'll pop back on together. We can launch this and we can help promote it through our through our platform. So I just want to say thank you from all of us for giving us uh, half an hour of your time here talking about Veda Sport, talking about your journey through hockey, and uh, really appreciate your openness to the questions and just kind of hanging out for a little bit. Uh, no problem, guys. I really appreciate your uh, your call, having me on, uh, interest, and in even talking to me. I really appreciate it, and uh, thanks for giving me the platform to speak about Veda Sport and the well mental health so uh anytime you guys want me back on i'm more willing to i love talking to you guys i appreciate your time thanks rob appreciate it buddy take care guys thank you want to thank as always our friends at sherwood ford the giant give them a follow on twitter at sherwood ford and give them a follow on instagram at sherwood ford underscore the giant that was great stuff rob shrimp he seems like one of those guys who really has his head screwed on straight. I like when he was talking about can't even go play beer league hockey. Like he just wants to step away from the game and you kind of respect a guy for doing that. You spend your whole life working towards playing hockey, playing hockey, playing hockey. And it does take a certain amount of mental strength to kind of step away from the game and be comfortable with life away from it. That was a great chat. Next up, we're going to go through, I mean, this was, when you look at the last, let's even go 10 years of Oilers hockey, the one moment that just sparked outrage with Pretty much everyone in the fan base was with Bob Nicholson made his comments about Tobias Reeder and saying that if he would have scored 10 to 15 goals, they might have been in the playoffs. Like that whole day was just such a mess on Twitter, everywhere online. Oilers fans were just so pissed at Bob Nicholson. Um, and the guys actually had a hell of a debate about it as well. Here's about 20 minutes of them arguing about Bob Nicholson. I promise you it's incredible. Edmonton Oilers, the CEO, Bob Nicholson and vice chair of something, something. Well, he kicked a hornet's nest yesterday. I don't know if you guys heard. I don't know if you guys have been living. If you've been under a rock, check the internet, the tweets. Bob Nicholson pissed off the world yesterday when he was at a season ticket holder meeting and essentially threw, well, not essentially, he literally threw Tobias Reader under the bus, Pick backed him it over physically, him. threw him under the bus. It was, it was He's pretty now on the injured reserve. Cameron, you wrote about this. 
This article that you had was trending on Google. It was trending on Twitter, Facebook. It erupted. So if you don't know what we're talking about, Bob Nicholson, as I said, shat upon Tobias Reader for literally no reason. It was, I, I assume somebody asked him a question about Reader and he decided to take his shot. Sometimes you got to shoot your shot. Here's what he said. And then we're going to get some reactions here. We've got a packed house today to my left. We've got Dan, Chris, Cam's here. Jay the Squire is here. He wants to get in on it. Rick's behind me. Jared's beside me. Evan's here. We've got a packed house. We found Evan. We found Evan. He made it back from Vegas alive. We're going to get to that in a minute. Back to Bobby. He said, Toby Reader will not be signed by the Edmonton Oilers at the end of the year. Weird for a CEO to say, but we'll get there. Toby Reader was a player that other teams wanted. He came here for one year because he wanted to play with Leon Dreisaitl, who he plays with on the German national team. He thought if he wasn't playing with Leon, he'd be playing with Connor. He'd score 15, 16 goals, and instead of making $2 million, he'd sign a four-year deal, four-year extension at $3.5 million. Toby Reader hasn't even scored a goal. Toby Reader has missed so many breakaways. If Toby Reader had scored 10 or 12 goals, we would probably be in the playoffs. I don't know if you guys know who Tobias Reader is, but he played on the fourth line last night. Yet he is the one that was blamed specifically for the Oilers being where they're at. Let's go around the horn. Everybody looks a little bit miffed by the comments. Jay is, uh, I can see the steam coming out of his ears right now. The rage is building. Cam, you wrote about it. What do you think? I had a lot to say about this. There was so much to unpack about these absolutely asinine, wildly inaccurate statements that Bob Nicholson made. What, on one hand, it's bothersome that somebody in his position would come out and just publicly urinate on a player like that because it's disrespectful and it makes the organization look even more inept than it already is publicly. And then also... It goes to show how completely lost that guy is. If he thinks the difference between the Edmonton Oilers making and missing the playoffs is 15 goals, he is so far in the dark, there is no coming back. Perhaps the Oilers are so lost that they could use a GPS system from our friends at Sherwood Ford the Giant. If you're on the Twitter machine, go ahead and follow Sherwood Ford at Sherwood Ford. If you're on Instagram, follow them at Sherwood Ford underscore the Giant. They are fine folks there. They are doing all the car things you need, service-wise, sales-wise, just, just producing good content. That GPS pull that you. Uh, well, that you I'm gonna jump in on the GPS pull because, as the proud driver of the nation truck, I have not been lost in Edmonton for the seven months I've been driving this thing. So That's what I'm saying. Very accurate. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Go follow Sherwood Ford on their social media. Again, on Twitter, it's at Sherwood Ford. On Instagram, it's at Sherwood Ford underscore the Giant. Go see them in Sherwood Park. Get yourself a new vehicle. Maybe an impulse buy, Jay. Head on out there. Grab yourself a new F-150. Maybe an F-350 if you're feeling bold. Load it up. Load it up. We got a lot of shit in this town we're carrying right now because of this, this interesting, interesting organization. Back to Bobby Nix. Jay, you've been fired up about this for over 24 hours. What do you think? Well, to jump on Coombs, I don't know if I'm talking too loud, Jerry, because I don't have the earphones on. Um, I'm sorry, everyone. Uh... To jump on Coombs' statement, this guy is a professional CEO, like high-level business executive, and he goes 
to his customers, the season ticket holders, and I don't care if he was hot and and snapped and said this, but how does he not have, like, what is the underlying thought? Like, how does he, how does he go out and maim someone like he did with Tobias Reader? Like, he goes out and says that, you know, the team was run by Peter. It's not run by committee. And then he goes out and opens up by saying, we're not going to be resigning him. You know, what, 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 what kind of logic? He's throwing us around. You know, it's the water. It's, it was Pete's fault. No, it was us that did the decision. Oh, no, this, that. The confusion that's coming out of this guy. But the fact that he cracks under pressure as a professional executive like that and says something so childish. Well, and it wasn't even, it's not even that it was one thing. He kept harping on He was beating him. Like, is that where, what, where, what, so what is his underlying thought for him to go on a rant like that is what I want to know. Like, what, what I, I would really want to know what's going on in his head. Well, I think most people are going to sit there and go, you expected a lot more out of him. And I agree. There, 12 there, more goals, 16 more goals, 20 more goals there isn't going to change. There is a polished executive way to say that. And like, I, and we I agree with you. expected more out of Tobias Reader when we signed him this year. Yep. We know he's put out a good effort. Yep. And, like, leave it at that. We don't all, fucking pull out his stat sheet and then blame ways. him for why we didn't make the playoffs. We all know the Oilers aren't signing Tobias Reeder next year, but he didn't have to tell everybody it. Well, yeah, you never play. Like, it, <laughs> it, it, we just, like, sullied the like the name of the organization. Like, you think free agents are going to want to come here and well, take what, a try? What GM now is going to want to come into this role? Every GM is going to want to come. Every GM is going to want to come everybody, here and be like, everybody. oh, Bob Nicholson's already made a decision for me. I can't now sign this player that it's I to could be, maybe it's sign. It's Tobias Ryder, though. It's not even a big decision. How How is every GM going to want to come into this team if his boss is a guy who's going to maim one of his players? Well, there is there is no GM here right now. So that's probably something that you wouldn't have said or at least left it up to the GM to say, had we had one or here right now. I think... Everybody's gonna the GM lineup is gonna be massive. I can't remember somebody said the other day it's gonna be four thousand. There's gonna be a ton of people trying to get this job. There are so many reasons to get that job. Um, Dallas's owners or whatever the hell those guys were tore into their best players, not but a that's fucking different. bottom line guy. That's different. That's different because you're not beating up on the little guy. You're you're calling out your star player, a but guy you're just paying ten million dollars to. And, and, and yeah, what do I agree fully with how we approach it? No, but I don't mind someone calling out the guy he's paying $10 million a season to if you're that sh- he's not performing. The guy that you're paying $2 million on just a one-year, like, like taking a gamble, and he's underperforming, and that's the fucking reason? Okay, well, so first of all, he should not be number one on this list. There's probably nine other people, and I agree with you there. I agree with you there. There's definitely nine other topics you can point at first, but if you're going to take a shit on a player, I'd much rather be a guy on his way out who is a low-level guy than trying to piss off your 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 upper echelon guys because that's... You don't want to. You don't want to piss off your Sagans, your Bens, your 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 Connors, and your Leons. If you're gonna shit on somebody, shit on a low level guy. The best part about this whole thing is Bob Nicholson started digging his hole like a couple months ago with the blame the water quote, and then at the beginning of the week at the uh, the season's ticket holder uh, a conference, he started talking about how their goal is to get a top two defenseman, and then we all know that so- someone yelled out, "Well, that was what the Adam Larson trade was supposed to be for." And then, and then, obviously, yesterday he drops the Toby Reader thing. Like this guy should not have a mic in his hands ever. He shouldn't be speaking to the public. My, fa- I think my favorite part about this whole thing right now. <laughs> I think my whole my favorite part about this whole thing right now is watching Jared work the dials, controlling the levels on Jay and Rick going back and forth. What I don't understand is why does the CEO of the OEG feel the need 
to say we're not signing anybody. The only way that makes sense is if he already knows Keith Gretzky is the GM. And why else would they, why else would he say it? Otherwise, there's no way he could know that they're not going to sign Tobias Reader. Another thing that came out last night, uh, a personal friend of mine, Ryan Rashog, tweeted out, Reader's agent Darren Ferris said, I am totally an as- astonished and disappointed that the president of an NHL team can make such a callous and reckless statement about a player. This is completely unacceptable. I agree. That's, I agree. That's so accurate. Because there's a couple of things here too. There's there's many layers to this onion. He goes out and says that at a season ticket holder event where there's a room full of people with fucking computers in their hand. Instantly, these tweets go out. Twitter starts erupting. By the way, the blame Toby hashtag, so good. Oh, Canada wide. It was fantastic. The blame Toby hashtag, if you want to dive into that, spend a little, take a little dip in late Chris today. Check out all those things that Toby's to blame for. But what about the dressing room? We talk about character at this fucking team all the time. How do you find character if you have none? If you're the CEO of the a $500 million company and you're taking shots at one specific guy, what if Lucic had another 16 goals? Does he count? What about the fact that Ryan Strom has 14 in New York or Drake Kajula has 11 in Chicago? Seems to me that's 25 goals. I would have made up for that loss. I think we found where our character issues stem from. It doesn't make any sense that they keep talking about character when this is the kind of bullshit that they're going to say in public in front of a room full of people. You want to know what Oilers fans thought about it? The Oilers Twitter account tweeted out a little snippet of one of the season ticket holder meetings on their Twitter. The responses are sensational. People are so mad just completely shocked, but at the same point, why would we be? I think Wanya had a great tweet last night during the game that if Rogers' plays got struck by a meteor, he wouldn't be surprised anymore. It's just how many ways can this team find to shoot themselves in the foot? How can you have the guy who's ahead of your company taking shots at people? He's tarnishing the crest that we are so loyal to. Like... He is he is he is the front facing thing. He is the boss of that crest, the Oilers logo that we love and cherish so much, and he is devaluing it to the entire world. If you listen to sports media to, for the next 2 days, it's just going to be talking about how fucking dumb it is in Edmonton. Yes, it was a dumb thing to say, but I'm almost guarantee you that Glenn Sather leveled players way harder that were way better. Back in the eighties, I think we're getting, we're getting a little we're getting a little like we're getting a little soft these days. Okay, yes, he should not have said it. I'm the way. all about calling out players. I know this. Is I why, love this about is why calling out players, little, but like there's 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 a way to do it, and you call out the right fucking player. You still maybe call, say you're fuck still Koskinen. Guys it might have been goals. a mistake. That would not. I'd you're take still that calling over. out a guy with zero goals, two million dollars for zero goals, and I agree with you. There are seventeen other fucking things to point at first. But he's not wrong with what he said, except for the fact that 12 goals would get us in the playoffs. $2 million. We expected a lot more out of him. He probably expected a lot more of himself, too. And I'm not sitting here trying to fucking back Nicholson. I'm just trying to calm people down because Twitter's turned into, like, we take one thing and it's a fucking dog pile all of a sudden. But they're not, Twitter blown, isn't wrong in this And case. they get blown out of proportion. Nope, but it gets blown out of proportion. Now, I know those tweets that Bag Milk just read, or those, those quotes... I want to know 
did he just re- did he just rifle those off one by one without saying anything? Yeah. Were there people talking to him? What were the what was the context beh- behind this? Everybody started fucking losing their mind yesterday, and I went, okay, you know what? I'm not saying a damn thing until I get some context or hear with my own ears. And then, of course, the transcripts came out. But still, there's got to be something else in the middle there, because I he didn't just come out and say read those 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 quotes yeah. in, in in a row. That's and what just I know. The off. why? Why why are you saying that? Why got, are you saying that publicly? What, had, what, what like, is motivating you he's to want to go and just just berate a player? He was on his fifth. He was on his. Oh. He was on his fifth. He was on his fifth meeting with with uh, with season ticket holders, and I guarantee you that's gotta be horrible. Exactly. And I don't feel sorry for him at I, all. I don't disagree. And I don't feel sorry at all. However, by the fifth one, yeah, he got a little defensive. He came out and he fought back a little bit, and he took down a guy who's been definitely a bit of a flat tire for us when you expected more out of him. Not, I don't know what he expected out of him. Even twelve more goals ain't gonna change shit. But, but you're just, yeah, he, he he took fucking five days worth of uh, fucking shit and coughed back a little bit and never should have. If that's the guy that's in charge of this, I want somebody who fucking can take that and walk away and you can go punch a punchy bag in the back room afterwards. But in front of the cameras, in front of the season ticket holders, in front of fucking everybody, Childish. you got to be fucking much more professional than that. It's but that's- Okay, that's Dan, the Dan, point. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's the point, though, is that we're getting we're getting a peek behind the curtain, and the scary thing is, is that the organization is pointing at the Tobias readers of the of the world as the issue to be the as the issue as to why we're not in the playoffs and why we're not successful. They're not looking at themselves. They're not looking at the choices that they've made. They're they're pointing at a guy that is making two million dollars that is on a value contract. He's 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 nothing, and he's going out the door. It's just nonsense. But. We're talking about a series of gigantic mistakes. There is no that talk he about- is then going customer facing and saying, "No, it's this one, not everything that happened up until this point." He is anchoring it all in this one thing. I'm all about calling out players, but to sit in front season ticket holders who are paying the freight for this team and to go out and childishly accuse one of the smaller players in the organ they're supposed to play a minor role and shit on them it's it's a bad look in a bigger- and that's what like to Dan's point that's scary what is actually going on in the organization for them to think that is the case the the to me the bigger picture is about a team that talks about character and culture over and over and over again what do you think this did in the dressing room yesterday are you telling me that, oh, well, Bobby said that he apologized and me and Toby had a good laugh about it? No, he didn't. Man. There's no way Reed is laughing about it. There's well, that's no a, way. Yeah. There's no way he's laughing about it because why would his agent come out and say, oh, obviously the agent has to come out and say it. But like, what does Connor say to Toby then? Hey, man. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry that our boss's boss took a shit on you for absolutely no reason. I mean, I'm all for pl- calling players out too. Do it in the room. That's the coach's job. You employ a coach to motivate players and to crap on players and to praise players. And you do it behind the doors. Honestly, the only like the, there's a positive in this and that's that the boys will probably rally together around Toby. And honestly, it's probably going to bring them closer together. If, 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 if they're not every player in that room, isn't trying their damn hardest to get that guy, his goal, then fuck all those players, man. Like if you're not like telling that guy to go to the net and like, you're throwing it at his ass to get it in the net, then like what the fuck? Another problem I have is, I don't think Bob Nicholson understands how goal differentials work. 
let's say the Oilers right now have a negative 35 goal differential. Let's say Toby had 16 goals. They'd still be down 19. Yeah. What are we talking about here? Learn stats. Don't make yourself look like an asshole. Don't criticize players in front of a room full of people. It's pretty simple. If you want to criticize Tobias Reader, call a team meeting. Go down there and do it. I like yesterday after the comments, Kat Silverman posted the video of Toby Reader scoring two shorthanded goals back to back in like 20 seconds against the Oilers. A few when was ago. that? Like four years ago? Yeah. But I mean, still, it's like this. Is it was two years ago. He's on two bad years <laughs> in a row. And that's fine. You know what? Should he have said, we're not bringing him back? Probably not. But at the same time, that doesn't fucking bother me that much. And I think it's we're bringing out some tinfoil hats if we think that means Keith's in charge now. It's already over. Keith's already in charge. There's no fucking way they just give it to Keith. Does Keith deserve a fucking interview? Yes. Go look at everybody in white collars and around the league. They agree with us. They were, Sorry, they agree with me. They know a hell of a lot more about what goes, goes on behind the scenes in teams, especially ours, than we do. We sit here and think... We sit here and see from our perspective, and we don't see shit. We see 2% of what actually fucking happens out there. But it's probably peaks, a good thing. It's the peaks behind the curtain that we're getting from the organization now that are that are terrifying. He's Bob Nicholson in the last like three weeks has admitted that they didn't interview anybody before they hired Peter Shirelli. They don't use analytics anymore on the te- in the team. They, uh, you know, and, the, and now he's dumping on a player that's making $2 million. Like, it's just, it's, you're right. We don't see the full picture. But the bit of the picture that we're seeing is an absolute dumpster fire. And the Oilers have also come nowhere near earning our benefit of the doubt. Like, come on. This is no. this is not the first PR mishap. Like with the Dallas Stars thing, when Jim Lights came out and he shit all over Radulov and Ben and Sagan, it was like, when was the last time you heard about the Dallas Stars having a PR thing? Like, okay, but that's is, the, the Dallas has one Stars. Of every single because, year. Because we're on a bigger scale because we're in Canada. And I mean, and he justifiably got spanked for it. The NHLPA came out and they were like, what the fuck, man? Like he got hit for it. And it's like, are we validating this happening because the Dallas Stars also did it? So because of what he's, if we just look at the exact words we use, are we feeling that bad for a guy who's making $2 million I don't, playing fucking I honestly hockey? couldn't even care less about Toby Reader. It doesn't matter. I don't care about his feelings. Then why the I fuck care is mainly, everyone sitting going, I care I mainly, every shot goes off his ass. Everybody should be trying to get him his goddamn goal. Yeah, but the point is, is that we have someone who's wildly incompetent running the organization. He, he sat there and fucking shit the bed when he was getting everybody fucking firing on him. I almost guarantee you if if all all of us sat here sat through what he had to go through for five days in a row, and I'm not again, I'm not backing him up. I'm just trying to explain you things. You are fucking backing him up, sir. I I have sat there as in my job. You enjoy I a Bobby Nix burger at the game. I would maybe. Yeah. I've never had one though. Um I don't oh, have that kind of money. Come on now. <laughs> Except for when I hit the crafts table. <laughs> I've sat there and I've had customers berate me and go off and you're like, okay, you try and go with them. You try and understand, 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 understand. They don't stop. They don't stop. They don't stop. And then fucking at the end, I just, I cut it off. I say, you know what? Stop pointing your finger. Stop yelling. Stop doing this. And I say that. And I shut it down. And I agree with you. And I agree with you. And I agree with you. And I don't think he should have said what he said. However, at the end of the day, I don't think it's because he's incompetent. I don't think it's because he's an idiot. I think that he just got overwhelmed and he got emotional and he fucking spouted off and said things he shouldn't. The reason that you but still like, have your job, Rick, is because you can handle it day after day. Whereas Bobby Nix just proved that five days is too much for him to answer questions. No, to that's the, five days. Why, just why, is, why is that the shot, shot you take? I would be like, it was just the one. It was the it was the it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, it was the last like, one that got you. Say anything else. 
And I agree with you. What he say said was wrong. They were not happy with Toby Reader. I yeah. I honestly, see, for me, they were the disappointed with his performance this year. Watching don't every, fucking walk up and down him and watching, then blame him for not being. Listen in the playoffs. to everything he said so far. And he keeps putting his fucking yeah. foot in his mouth every single time. They say this, they get shit on. They say this, they get shit on. They start going back, backtracking, saying the exact opposite. Yeah. They've been, honestly, these things have been horrible. They need to come out with an apology. Listen, everybody, I'm apology sorry. Apology is worth we, absolute. They no, have I, no fucking currency with the fans right now. Th- that I policy think, is worth fucking shit. I think this would get you a lot more respect from, the, from everybody. If you just came out and said, you know what? We apologize. We screwed up. We have not taken the team down the down the road we want to. Yeah, okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go dark till draft day. We're going to fucking fix some shit. We're going to fix mm. this, this, and this. We're going to get us back on the road. So and what we're you're talking about is back. transparency, something they never fucking give us. But that, That's exactly what we deserve. No, I just fed you a, a spoonful of what you want to hear, though. But fucking, t- but whether be you, honest whether about I it. Whether I believe it or not, I don't know if I even believe that. Like, they're better to go dark to than to go to fucking sit I'm on like, fucking Toby. Anyways, I want, you're, you're talking about Nicholson feeling fatigue of taking arrows for five days so with fans. Go watch. Not fatigue. Just, go watch Sunderland Till I Die on Netflix. You'll see oh yeah. some similarities between them and the Oilers in the sense of a team that was awesome in the 80s and 90s. Now have a new owner, new leadership. And now the club is failing. So and 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 this 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 and this team means everything to the city. Does any of this ring a bell? Go watch that because their GM frequently will go in front of their supporters because they put their supporters above all, and they will sit there and he will fucking take arrow after arrow after you're watching it and it's uncomfortable. But you're like, I respect that he's doing it. And he's saying like what they're trying to do. And he's being very open and honest. And he's not, he never called it one of his players. And they showed many of these instances. And just so you know, drunk soccer fans are probably more aggressive than Canadians at a season ticket holder event. Like this guy is catching arrows and he doesn't break. Why can't, why can't our high priced executive not take the right route? In communicating things and protecting the brand value. The brand has been damaged by this. I agree. All I know for sure, gentlemen, is that this situation stinks. <laughs> Which reminds me of our friends at the Pog Deodorizer. What you need to do is you need to head on over to thepogstore.com. Grab yourself either a mobile unit, a wall unit, and kill 98% of household odors caused by bacteria and fungus. Maybe, maybe, what the Oilers need so desperately is a little bit of ozone spread through the area. Clean things Plug up. in rogue style. It freshens and purifies the air naturally using the power of nature. It eliminates odors without the use of dangerous chemicals. Freshen your life. Head on over to thepogstore.com. Grab yourself a puck. Well done, bag milk. Thank you. Do you like that one? That I've been sitting on that for like three, <laughs> yes. four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what, I think that the bigger point for me, at least, it, and I'm with Cam, is it doesn't matter that it was Toby Reader. At, it, at the end of the day, that's inconsequential. At the end of the day, to me, the fact that it was him and not Colby Cave or fucking, you know, Ty Ratty, Kevin Gravel. Yeah, yeah like, I mean, it, whoever it is is inconsequential. The fact that the CEO said that in front of a group of paying customers. And then another thing, too, is, and Jay touched on this, this wasn't just an off-the-cuff comment. No. He dressed Reader down. They've yep. been thinking about this. He woke up in a cold sweat 
multiple times and put these thoughts together. This is not this is not improv. That was the first bullet out of his chamber. Exactly. Is what's is what's scary. This isn't just random stuff. This isn't just random stuff off the top of his According head. to Bruce McCurdy's recap, this was a fluid conversation where he was riffing. So I don't know if there was more questions inside. I don't know if there was more uh, questions coming in. All I know is that for a CEO, this is a real bad look. And I would love to know what was going on in the Oilers office after this came out and the reactions started flooding in because they had to smoke bomb their way out of there, try and figure out what to do, release a statement. They had John Shannon on the intermission, Doing basically PR. with tears running down his eyes, begging for forgiveness for Bob Nicholson, just like he told fans, don't be mean to Peter Shirelli. Give me a break, man. Give me a break. This whole thing is just bananas. It's like... It's like the Ottawa Senators will do something so ridiculous and the Oilers are like, huh, you think you're going to get away with this? We'll show you. To wrap up our best of episode, I mean, we started with Rob Shrimp, who I said was a polarizing player. This next guest is the exact opposite of polarizing. George LaRock was absolutely loved by everyone far and wide, all across of Oilers Nation. Um, definitely goes down as one of the best fan favorites, biggest fan favorites, if you want to call it that in Oilers history, and his interview lives up to the hype. Here are the boys chatting with George LaRock. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 21 of Oilers Nation Radio. Today is a big day for all of us. We are very, very excited. It is the first time that we've had a special guest of this magnitude. You are going to know him from his 490 games played with the Edmonton Oilers, 695 games overall in his NHL career. Welcome Thank you very much for your time, Mr. George LaRock. Thank you, guys. Thanks for inviting me. How you been doing, George? Are you keeping busy? Yeah, yeah, pretty busy. Doing a lot of things since I retired. And, uh, and it's awesome because I'm hyperactive and I love to uh, move around. What, do you, what are you getting up to these days? What are you working on? Is there anything in particular that's occupying your time right now? Well, um, you know, I've, uh, I have my own radio show in Montreal five days a week. I own a vegan restaurant in Montreal, a clothing company made with recycled plastic. I'm a part owner of Rice Kombucha. I own my own energy drink company. I'm a public speaker. I do uh, public speaking all around the world. I'm a bestseller author. I, I wrote my own autobiography in French and English. And, uh, you know, I, I it's, it's getting sold all over the place. So, yeah, I do a lot of things. Uh, I own also a card store. I'm in Mobilia, uh, hockey cards, uh, football, basketball, like all, ma- all four major sports uh, also. Sports. So uh, because of all that stuff, it keeps me uh, pretty busy and having lots of fun. So just a few things on the go, George. Yeah, a few things. <laughs> just, just like you guys, just like you guys. Well, hey, we try. We're, uh, we're excited to have you, and, and we yeah, we're, uh, we're over the moon. This is, uh, uh, you know, Cam here has said... The, Many times, you're his favorite player of all time. Yes, it's true. The first ever jersey that I bought as a child was a George LaRock jersey. I, uh, you signed it for me when I was nine years old, and it's a child's extra large, and I can still fit into it, and I still wear it to games <laughs> at the age of 25. <laughs> that's awesome. That, man, that's awesome. And my God, do I don't fit, do I don't fit in anything when I was 25. 
<laughs> Fair enough. So George, we, uh, we, I mean, I know you, you follow the league quite heavily and, and I know, you know, that, you know, it, it's tough times right now in Edmonton. Uh, what are you, what are you trying to, or if we, if we ask you to try and make sense of the situation going on right now, what would you say to, to the, to the Oilers fans listening? The first thing I would say is that I feel really, really, really bad uh, to the city, to the fans, because Edmonton is the best place to play in the NHL. And one of the reasons is because of the fan support, how loud that they are, how passionate that they are. And it's just amazing. And I know that ever since 2006, there have been a lot of many dark years for Edmonton. And, uh, you know, every year winning the first, uh, draft overall and, and not making the playoff was hard. And when the Oilers finally uh, got McDavid, which he is the best player in the world, you would think that those 10 years drought without making the playoff were over. Because with Connor and, and Joy Saddle, you have the top two centers in the NHL, top one and two. And it does not make sense that this team uh, made missed the playoff last year and on the verge of missing it again this year. Um, it, it doesn't make sense when you look at that. because and, and the thing about that is there's nothing negative to say about Connor. Connor is unreal. But he on that team, it's like, uh, you know, he, he's alone. You know, Dry Saddle is doing a good job too, but Connor is like, he has to, uh, without him, there's no offense, there's nothing. And now teams are knowing that if we shut Connor down, then they're done. And that's what's so hard because now you look at what's missing on that team. There's so much piece of the puzzle missing with the Oilers that the next GM that comes in, where is he going to start with? Because the Oilers can't be rebuilding. It doesn't make sense. They've been rebuilding for 10 years. So they have to win and they have to make the playoff now. And I don't think the fans would accept that the team that the team goes back on the rebuilding phase when they've been patient for so long. And now they have, like, unbelievable players on that team. It's just that there's some decisions, obviously, that were made that didn't help them. But the biggest decision right now that has to be done is the GM that, that's going to come and is going to have to fi fix past mistakes and make that team a contender. Because, you know, if you wait too long, um, you know, the parade's going to go, and then, you know, the opportunity of winning is going to shrink, and then they're going to lose a big chance of uh, winning the cup again. George, let's say, so the Oilers made, you know, they fired Peter Torelli um, the other day. Edmonton's without a general manager right now. Let's say you were hired to be the GM of the Oilers today. What steps would you take to turn this team from kind of flubbing around on the outside of the playoffs to turning them into the true contender they can be with Connor McDavid? Well, to be honest with you, the first thing I would have done, the selection of the coach. Um, when I look at the talent on that team, what I, I would have picked for a coach, I would have picked somebody that is harder on guys. I would have picked some, someone like Michelle Taylor, Joel Quenville, like guys that are known to deal with superstars, uh, you know, Taylor dealt with Crosby, with Malkin, and all those guys. And, 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 and yeah, he's a hard coach. Like, he's a coach that pressed the most as he can have his players. But when you do so, yeah, you, you can't, 
for after three, four years, you're done because you you really hard on guys, but, but it works. And and Kenzie, what he's done with Chicago, and 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 now deal with superstars. I think you needed somebody that experience and not the old mentality. You needed somebody with the new mentality. And I was really surprised with the selection of of Hitchcock to come in to coach. So the first thing I would do because you look at and math and defense and forward. And you have to be realistic when you say, I, I would do this and that and this. It starts with the culture. It starts behind the bench. You know, because the mentality uh, on that team, it has to change. And you got to make guys accountable and, and with the way that they play and, and make them, like, make retribution. If, like, you look at the game against Detroit that game. And when Charlie got, got, got fired, the team was dead. There was no energy. There was something missing. It, it, and I don't know what it, what it is. It, it's so sad to see this. And when you look at that, you're like, well, I'd, be a, I'd find a coach that if I wouldn't see the work ethic on the ice, I would sit in practice. And I'd be hard on guys. and make them work much harder. That's the first thing that I would do. I would start with a coach. Because in terms of saying that I would have this or this or this or this player, um, there's so many things uh, that that needs to be assessed. That there's no quick fix right now for that team, other than uh, having the right coaching staff. George, were you surprised when the Oilers got rid of Todd McClellan in November? Was did, was that the right move at the time? Well, I was surprised that Todd McClellan was actually starting the year, you know, with with the team. I said that for sure that Tommy was going to be gone. So. Um, you know, and, and then after a bad start of the season, that they, they had no choice. But, you know, it's, it's just that coaching in the NHL, you know, average of three years, you know, you, you did three, four years, you did your time, and you stay longer if you really have a lot of success. And what that shows, with, what Hitchcock is doing now, is that we really blame McClellan for what was going on with that team, because it's the same problems that we're seeing right now. And, and th- th- there's one thing that comes to mind when I look at that is the year that the others made the playoff, which we thought it was going to be a streak that was going to go on for years and years. That year, Talbot has an unbelievable, he had an MVP year. And with Connor, he was the best player on the team. And after that year, he was never able to have the same year again. So what that shows is that the Talbot that we saw that year was the best that it could be. He was plateaued at that performance. But I don't think we'll never, ever see that again. So it's almost to the point that did what Talbot did the year that the others made the playoff, well, the others made the playoff because he played subpar. Is that the reason why they got him? Because you look at that. Do the others need it? Unbelievable goalie to make the playoff, and they could make it with an average goalie. There's so many questions that have to be asked because it doesn't make sense. You know, nothing to say against Connor, nothing to say against uh, Jai Sado, but why are they not making it? And that's what doesn't make sense. One thing that gets talked about a lot in Edmonton right now, George, is the culture of the team. And I'm curious from somebody who's actually been in NHL dressing rooms. What does the culture of a team mean? Because I feel like in Edmonton, we've been talking about how this needed to change for 10 years now, since you were around. So I'm curious, what does culture in the dressing room mean and how 
How can you improve that aspect of a team? Okay, well, that's a, that's a really good question because when you last for so long, right? When you lose for such a long amount of time, the core of you guys, if all they've ever known was losing, how do you know what step to take to start winning? And that's the problem. This team has been losing for so long that everybody in the management to the players, that's what they've been around all this time. So you almost forget what it's like to be winning. And and that's what's so hard because now it's like it's a standard that you never want to accept. But Edmonton, with, with the rich history that is there and the fans and what they've seen and the cops, the success that they've had, it's kind of like the Canadian. I put Edmonton in the same category, even though Canadians have more standard cup. The Oilers is a team that has to win. They're condemned to win. They're condemned to excellence because they've had the best player to ever play in the NHL as Wayne Gretzky as an ambassador that is there. They have the best player of today's game, which is McDavid, and you have to win. It doesn't make sense not to win. So to, the only way that you change that mentality is most of the guys that were there in those 10 years that they weren't, that they weren't winning, a lot of them are gone. So, you know, and then, you know, you know, and especially leaders, like, even though, you know, you would have wished the others that they would have got more in return for Taylor Hall or, or Eberle, they were gone because they were part of that core group that were there during all those years that they've lost. So, you know, if you look at that, it's one aspect of it we could look at, but it still doesn't make sense that even with that, with the past of it, the present this is when you look at the team now, you say, okay, Connor's there, Josado's there. We have to build a team around those two guys. And there's just some big mistake that's been done. Like, like, and it's, I know it's always easy to say after, but just imagine like uh, Griffin Reinhardt that, that goes for first pick, which turned out to be Barzell. If Barzell played that play with Mike David, how, like, how that team would be different. You know, there's so many different things I did that we could look at, which after the fact is always easy to do so because GMs, you know, Charlie's not the only GM that, that, that made mistakes in the past. It's just that he made the collection of mistakes in a row that killed the others. And, you know, when people say he hit a home run, he drafted McDavid. My grandmother is no hockey and she would have drafted him. So, it's not part of your resume to say you drafted McDavid because when you won the lottery, everybody knew that he was going first. But after that, let's look at what he's done to surround him, and that's where it fell. Because, you know, you look at who McDavid is playing with, man, um, he's alone. And and that's the biggest problem. And the the supporting cast around him is just not good enough. What? For me, I find it hard as an Oilers fan to watch this team and have so much of the roster that's unable to contribute on a day-to-day basis. Do you think that also affects kind of the mood around the team that a guy like Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and Ryan Nugent Hopkins are having to carry so much of the load? It's just the fact that right now the team is, because of last year, it happens sometimes like you have a bad year and you didn't make it. But now that 
the way things are going right now, you could tell the guys are desperate. You could tell that the moral is not there. Like, they, right now, the mentality, like, at the All-Star game, is like, here we go again. And, and, and nothing is working. There's, I'm telling you, like, I, it's so hard to say. It doesn't even make sense when I look at that. Because I look at Calgary, and, and I hate Calgary. And it's showing me <laughs> yes, that they, they're the best team in the West. They're the best team in the West and the second best team in the NHL. Are you kidding me? I would take the Oilers roster way before Calgary. But you know the biggest difference where when when you have the GM, how big a difference it makes? Trading compared to Charlie, traded. Mikael Sarlin, Adam Park, and Dougie Hamilton. For who? Yeah. Like, like those two guys with Derek and Lena, Lena Holm and, and the other guys that came in with them. Unbelievable. Like, the year that they were having and, and that trade, how it changed the Cardinals' playing. And the GM with the Oilers, like, which is his job to be trade like this, to find guys to surround, to surround Connor and to surround Jay Saddle. That's the difference. The difference from last year, from the Flames, that's what it is. It's a good coach that came in. That is, in, is going to be nomination for the Jack Adams. Unfortunately for Peter's shot, what he did without uh, without uh, Tavares with the Islanders is, is nothing short of a miracle. So Trot's going to win it, and, and Peter's going to be a runner-up. But the GM picked him, which is a really good choice, and he made an unbelievable cha- uh, trade that changes team. When, uh, when you look at the Oilers, the trade that Charlie has made has not helped the Oilers with Connor. So that's the only thing that I could really see in the immediate that, that shows me that trade was no good, and because of the result of it, guys are getting more discouraged, and, uh, and, and it's hard on them, and I know they want to win. You know, I don't want to criticize any guys in the dressing room because they do the best that they can. They don't want to be in that situation. They see the captain working his, his butt off, and they want to follow through, and they want to be good. And But, you know, we have to come to a point to look at the guys on the team and just realize and say, are they just good enough? Is our team is good enough right now to make the playoff? So it's not even a question of just will. It's a question of the, the, the players that you have, the way this team is built, and saying that, do we have the right goalie? Do we have the right defenseman pairs? Do we have the right forwards? Do we have good enough wingers? Are we fast enough? Are we having guys utilizing uh, Connor's speed, playing with him? Another combination of factors. What is the other's identity? What kind of team they are? Is that a team that hates you out of the building? Is that a team that is going to skate you, skate you out, and you won't be able to keep up? What's the their identity right now? It's so hard to say because their identity is Connor McDavid, and it's nothing else. Yep. With that in mind, George, you played here for a long time, and I'm curious about the pressure of playing in Edmonton. The reason that I think this is so important to ask you is because you played in Edmonton, which is the Oilers are everything, but you also played in Pittsburgh. You played in Montreal, where there is also pressure there. How does that? How does it differ from playing in a town like Edmonton to maybe in when you were in Montreal? Are fans too hard on the Oilers here? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't think they're hard enough. In Montreal, they have the hardest times in the league, and it's known. It's known for that, and that's one. That's the reason why there's many guys that refuse to play in Montreal because of that pressure. 
you play, you know, hockey market in Canada, they know their hockey. And because they know their hockey, fans know their hockey and they're passionate about it, hockey being national sport in Canada, um, they demand excellence. And they've had excellence before. The Canadians had excellence before, they won it again. Last time they won the Cup, 93, they won it again, and they're really demanding. When the team is winning, there's not, not a better place to be in Montreal. When it's losing, it's the worst place to be. In Edmonton, it's, they're not as hard as they are in Montreal because, you know, you know, it's a bit different. Like, people, are, they've been more patient. Like, the fans aren't real in Edmonton, the fact that they've waited 10 years to make the playoffs. In, in Montreal, do that now, and a bomb is going to blow up at the ring. There's no way people will be that patient for it. The fans in Montreal would never accept a team to be rebuilding, and the others been rebuilding for 10 years. So when you look at that, the fact that while the team wasn't making the playoffs, they still put, put, like, put a ring together, put Rogers' place, um, and they knew it was going to be packed up, it shows you how passionate people are in Edmonton and how they are behind their team. So, but I just think that it is normal the fans to be demanding. They should be demanding because often fans are the ones putting pressure to management or to teams to make some change because they want to win. You know, the fans are the reason why, um, you know, the last week's week are, are sold out. Um, the tickets, the games are sold out. That, the fans are the reason why all the guys, everybody makes so much money, why the owners make so much money, why the revenue in the league is growing so much. The fans are. Gone. So they're entitled. The fans are entitled if they're not happy to express their opinion because they're the ones paying for all of it. And it's just normal. If you're not happy, don't shut up. Say exactly what you think because your voice is important because with your voice is how you're going to have some change. And you never want to accept mediocrity. I played in Phoenix where sometimes you see no media after the game, where fans never said anything. And we were out of playoff in December and it didn't matter. That was a terrible hockey market city to play at. But you look at places like Edmonton, um, Montreal, Pittsburgh, plays that people demand excellence. They want to win. It is just awesome. And it also forces you to push to play harder. And also knowing that when you play hockey and fan knows the hockey, they know if you're cheating because they watch hockey and they kind of analyze you. They see if you're passionate and all that stuff. That's why I love that the fact that my 13-year career, I play with two Canadian teams because it makes it much more fun to play for Canadian team where people know their hockey and they're really behind the team as you play in a market where football is number one, baseball is second, and hockey is, is getting the leftovers, uh, leftover third. So in 2006, obviously something that's incredibly important to all Oilers fans of this generation, you know, the biggest success we've seen in a long time, you guys kind of went from the years before that just being kind of, you know, that team that made the playoffs, got bounced in the first round or missed the playoffs by a little bit. What was it that happened in 2006 that allowed that group to just really find it and just plow through the rest Western Conference like you did? What Was it like, was it the coaching? Was it the influx of new players or was it the excitement of the fans? How did that all happen for you guys? Well, first of all, it was Chris Pringer. Uh, when the Oilers got Chris Pringer to a team, um, it changed the entire team because, you know, you get a defenseman that plays 20 minutes a game and comes in 
it changed the entire team. Um, the power play, special unit, it, 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 it was a boost to, to, to the others, what, what they did. What it did, it changed everything. You, just, you look at Montreal this year, for example, the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, you start the year, they were terrible, Weber was hurt. And when Weber came in, the team totally changed. Now they're, they're third in the Atlantic. It's one guy like that that you had into a team that was already good, but always battling for a playoff spot at the end, having a guy like that that came in make the big difference. So it was finally combined to the fact that, you know, the Oilers were really a tight group. We had the great mix of guys, too. We had speed. We had talent. We had toughness. We had it all. And also, we had Gator. We had a captain that would die. He was blocking shots. He was a warrior. He was just unreal. And when you saw a captain blocking shot like that, dying for the fuck like that, how could you not want to bleed and suffer to be on that team? It was a standard that nobody on that team accepted second measure. We were always playing for each other. We were a big family, and we wanted to suffer together and prove everybody wrong that we could do it, and we could make it, and we could win. And it's just that um, everybody was, did, was so good that year, did different things that, Change momentum that helped that team, and, and, and it was just awesome to gel together and to uh, you know to to have this run. The only thing is, I try to forget about this run often because when you're a kid and you play hockey on the street and you dream of playing Game Seven, the Stanley Cup Final with your friend, you don't. That dream never changes into a nightmare, and you lose that game. Usually, you win it. And I remember still when they scored on an empty net on Game Seven, and it was over. And, we're fully dressed after the game, two hours after crying. Um, this is something that we'll never forget because as good as it was in the city of Edmonton, um, I never thought after game six, when we won five nothing to even up the series, we were going to go to Carolina and, and lose game seven. And on top of that, the worst part of it that, that upset you even most is when I learned that when Carolina won the cup and they did the parade, people in the city complained because they said they were making too much noise during the parade on the street with the cup. <laughs> and the mayor promised that if they ever win the cup again, um, they, it would force them to celebrate at the rink and not on the street. When I heard that, I was like, are you kidding me? If the others would have won the cup in 2006, the parade to this day would still not be over. <laughs> on White Ave, still parading around with this cup. So yeah, when I look at that, it's just the wrong market city uh one obviously won the cup that year. So George, I, you know, it, it's so it's so fun to kind of to think back upon your career, especially with the Oilers. Uh, I think you'll go down as as one of the the favorite Oilers of all time, especially around this table. But I think in just in general. But uh, I wanted to to see if you could remember one specific day on the calendar. Uh, it was February twenty first in the year two thousand. Does that ring any bells for you? Yeah, it's, it's a dream that uh, that I had when I played PlayStation and Nintendo yes. when I played hockey. I've always dreamed of going a hat trick, but I would only do it in video games. So what I would do to have a hat trick, I would actually create a George Rock that I would boost with 99 overall skills. <laughs> and then when I boost myself up, I'd have even a hard time doing a hat trick in video <laughs> games with a player that was boost with 99, but... But that day, uh, that day I'll never forget it because 
we played the Kings, and, and I also had a fight that game, so I could baptize that having a George Rock hat trick is having a hat trick and a fight. Yes. And actually, Luchik has done it. He's done it with the others once. He did a hat trick and a fight one. So anyway, what I'll never forget about it is we're playing Emerson, and uh, and I remember I had two goals that game in a fight. And when there was about a minute left, uh, they pulled the goalie, and I remember the crowd chanting my name to go on for them together. And uh, Kevin went up to me and tapped me on the back and said, sorry, George, uh, can't put you out there. Because it was an important game to be first in the division, and we had to win, and we put the defensive unit with Yanni Lunema and, and, and Pablo Marchand, the defensive guys. And, and then I obviously I understood. You know, like, I was just like, oh, man, that was my only chance in life to, uh, to have a hat trick. So, and Yanni never scored an empty netter, and then, and then I put it down, there's 25 seconds left in the game, and, and I go on the ice, and I'm like, okay, well, it put, put, I, I often finish the games when the game was out of hand in case if the other team wanted to, you know, when they're frustrated, they want to push you around. Well, maybe you won't do it because George is on the ice. So there's 25 seconds, I'm like, I got two goals, and I'm like, it's over, I won't get it. And I don't know how that happened, but we hang up in their zone and, and I got a pass and, and boy, Devro. And I don't know why I did that because I tried it next day in practice and I couldn't do it. Uh, boy, Devro, when he gave me that pass, I did a spinorama like Denis Savard from the back of the And I'm like, in my head, what am I doing? <laughs> like, when you say that, sometimes things happen in, in life that you don't understand why. I did that move that I could never do again. And... And then I was in front of the goalie. I did a back in and I scored. And when I saw the puck going in the net, I'm telling you, if he would have clocked me the speed that I skated from that corner to, to our bench, maybe I would have beat Connor in that front <laughs> race. Well, George. The speed that I was going. I was so excited when I scored because I was excited, not just because it was, it was a hat trick, but it's because I couldn't believe it. No. I, I blacked out. I couldn't believe that with that time that was gone, that we got the empty netter, that it actually did happen. So I went nuts. I, 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 I was still just, I remember after the game, two hours after doing interviews, talking about it, it was unreal. And Wayne called me and he's like, congrats, you only need 49 more to break my record. <laughs> so, so I laughed because I was like, yeah, let's uh, start by playing 49 more games in the NHL first. Because obviously, you never know how long your career is going to be, but when he said that to me, I was like, it was such an honor. But, yeah, it's a day that I will never forget, and I'm glad that it happened in front of my fans. I still have the big frame that Pyron and me too at that time went out uh, in the parking lot and get the fans to sign, the fans to sign congrats and all that stuff. So I still have that uh, that, that poster that that I look at from one to from time to time to remember, uh, you know, that day and how awesome that it was. And, and this is something that I'm glad that I was able to share in front of uh, of my fans. Looking back on it, do you ever just take a moment to like go back and watch the highlights? We were watching the highlights of that hat trick before we started this morning, and there were so many things that were just beautiful about it. The finish, like you said, that spin move to the backhand, unbelievable. We all had a laugh because there was a ref in the corner that called the goal, and you barreled out of the zone like a house on fire and almost took him out as well. The Rexall place was going bananas. And even the call from Rod Phillips was amazing. So I hope that every now and then you get a chance to go back and look at that. Actually, the only reason why I look at that uh, is because sometimes when, you know, and often when I, people talk to me about hockey all the time, right? And every time 
from time to time, not every time, but from time to time when people ask me what's the best memory in the NHL, when I say scoring a hat trick, sometimes people, they don't believe me. <laughs> and when they don't, it is awesome because with technology today and everybody has iPhones or, or Android or whatever, you can go on YouTube and you can just show them. And every time I do, I have the rascal of voice with Marley Scott that, the under, that are talking about the hat trick with a great voice. Which there was nobody as nobody as good as Ross Phillips ever. Ross Phillips and Rick Janet are the best announcers ever that ever existed to describe hockey game. Rick Janet was in Buffalo and Ross Phillips in Edmonton. Right. And just there's two descriptions of Ross Phillips that I love. My hot trick one and my fight with Rob Ray. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, just the way that he described the fight with Rob Ray when you listen to it is just unbelievable. Ross Phillips is a legend in that department. I tell you what, George. So, so along with working with Oilers Nation, I do run uh, hockeyfights.com for us here, and and I will share that that video today. You can you can share that with the masses. Uh, that fight with Rob Ray. And speaking, I mean, of course, you know, you you uh, you were known as as one of probably one of the greatest fighters of all time in the league. Is there is there a guy that sticks out in your mind where you're just you know blown away by how tough he was and and one of your favorite guys to kind of square up with in in the league? Well, to start, I never had a favorite guy to square up with the league because as good as people say that I was, I hated it. This is so not me. I never thought I would be a fighter one. I always joke around, laugh around. And, and, you know, it was never in my mentality to be a fighter. It's just that I figured if I'm going to do something, I might as well be one of the best one at it. Because if you're better at it, you don't have to do it as much because guys will respect the team. Because guys will be like, Oh, this TV team in the NHL, George is playing on that team. Maybe I'll bother the other 29 team and I'll leave the others alone. You know, so the thing is, when you have a guy that is tough, you don't have to fight as much because guys don't take liberty on your team, which is great. So in terms of looking up about guys, you know, like, obviously the scary guy, the scary guy to fight was Bugard, and I fought him so many times because the guy is six foot mil- six foot a thousand and a million pounds, so he, he was a monster, and and because of that, you, you know, you you always like, you know, I was six to sixty, but you know, for a while I was the biggest guy in the league. And when Bugard came, I was I looked like a midget beside him. It, it was like, oh my god, if this guy makes you look like a midget, like how tough is he? And on top of that, um, he loved it. Bugard loved fighting, and he had a fighting camp in the summer and all that stuff. I was like, this guy is for real. And he wants to take my head off. Actually, <laughs> take my head off. So that's he's pretty much the, the, the guy that I will read the most every time that I fought him. Like, back to me, every time I did, I always did good. And I never got hurt. And I always did good with him. But it never changed the fact that every time I was playing him, I could see him looking at me in the warm-ups, and looking at me in the morning skate. And just with his eyes, you know, how he was in chance, I knew that he was going to come and ask me. So I always had to be ready. And I remember um, the first time I fought him was actually in Minnesota. That was right after he broke uh, the door space. And uh, everybody knew it was going to happen, right? And so I fought him, and, and, and I did really good on it. And I remember Matt T, uh showed that fight with all the guys. And he was telling the guys that, that he couldn't believe how calm that I was um, before it and stuff. And, and it's just that I was calm and, 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 you know, it was just a temper that I had, but 
I could never really fight mad because how could you constantly get mad when you fight because the guy didn't really do anything? But it was part of the job, and, and I did as the best as I could. But people that knew me personally, they knew that it was surely not the type of person that I was. George, looking at the NHL now, uh, we're with, of course, with George LaRock. Looking at the NHL now and how fights since you were in the league have decreased a little bit, where do you see fighting in the future of the NHL? Well, the thing with fighting is back in the day, um, fighting was always part of the game. And it was been there from the beginning. And I remember back in the days where Colbert would fight uh, red tie. People would show up two hours before the game because it was so exciting. There was electricity in the building. Now, concussion is starting to be a problem in the NHL. We decided that the problem of it was because of fighting. And actually, the biggest problem because of the concussion is not because of fighting, because of the cheap shot, the elbows, and, and the fact that they took out the red line, the game is so much faster. And guys, they have more speed when they're hitting guys. So, People think that uh, by taking fighting out of the game, you'll take the concussion problem out of it, when actually, that's what the biggest problem is. And when you take fighting out, you take the only type of retribution that could be there if somebody does a cheap shot. So, because fighting is what put bread on the table for me, I will never talk against it, even though I didn't like it. I'm always going to defend it, because fighting is the reason why I have a job. And fighting is the reason why some guys that play junior hockey hope that fighting stays so they could have a job. So I will never, ever talk against it. As popular as it could be now when you retire to say, oh, especially when I hear top guys that are retired that say, oh, okay, I'm done now. Okay, now I'm going to talk against fighting. You shouldn't be fighting in the NHL. Are you kidding me? You never said that when you were fighting. If somebody plays in the NHL and is a fighter, if you decide to retire after a year, think that fighting is too, it shouldn't be in the game, and you get out of the game, then I'll listen to you. Everybody that, that used to fight, that talks against fighting, is everybody that does that when they're retired, when they're done, and when they made all their money, like made all their money fighting. So to me, it's a hypocrite to do that. You did that job, endorse it to the end, because that's what you did for a living. Yes, I didn't like it. Yes, I did it for a living. That was my job. And yes, I hope it's safe for the guys that have the same talent that I, that I have that needs fighting to stay to have a job. I hope it's safe for him also. Is it just as important now that guys on the ice are policing themselves a little bit in addition to what the referees are doing? Or do you think that's faded out a little bit? Well, that faded out a bit because of the instigator rule. You know, before my time, just before the instigator rule was in, the policing was really bad because... If you did a cheap shot, you didn't drop the glove. It was too bad. You're getting, you're getting beat up. But now, the instigator rule is protecting guys that does cheap shot because if, if you know, somebody does a cheap shot, you go to him, doesn't drop the glove, and you hit him in the face, a blow to the head, a knife, he gets up on game suspension, and then you're done, and the guy's not going to fight. So cheap shot artists, guys, uh, they could hide behind the referee, and they could uh, get away with uh, get away with lots of stuff. So... One thing I kind of wanted to dive into is I remember one of my favorite memories of you as a player was always kind of coming out towards the end of a game and really getting the crowd fired up. Like I I have vivid memories of being at games and the coach would throw Big George on the ice and he would go, you know, deep down and, you know, muck stuff up behind the net, be like a like a disaster to deal with for the defenseman. 
beyond fighting, since you've made it clear you you don't really like that kind of that kind of thing, what do you feel like your strongest attribute was as a hockey player? Like, what was it that you brought to the table that made you really effective out there? Well, first thing is obviously physical play because I'm giving a lot of room to, uh, to my teammates. I remember when I played in the kids' line with Jim Dowd and Boy Devro, who contributed lots to, uh, you know, we are having some points on the board. When you have a fourth line, because I think obviously the fourth line most of my career, but a fourth line that, that, that could be in the offensive zone, because I remember I, I, I was pretty good at protecting the puck, keeping the puck down low. If you have a fourth line that is not, uh, that doesn't hurt you defensively, and that could, you know, throw their body around, create some energy, and always in the offensive zone, it's an advantage. Because, yeah, because then you, you, you could rest the other lines at the same time. You don't have to, to ta- overtax them by playing with two or three lines. You use everybody, people have more energy, and it makes a big difference. And I always took pride of the fact that when I played Edmonton, whether it was playoff time or not, um, I, uh, you know, I would always play, and even though there was no fighting in the playoffs, my physical play was good enough that I would actually play in a playoff and contribute. And actually, there's even one year. I'll ask you guys a trivia question, okay? Yep. Let's see who answers first. What year did I finish first scoring in a playoff with the Oilers? Was it 2002-3? Uh, uh, it's against Dallas. I'm not sure if it's 2000. It was the year. It was the year before the lockout against Dallas. I'm pretty sure. I think I remember that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's the one. But that would also explain why we uh, why we lost in the first round. If you're tough guy, <laughs> the team, if the leader put out the team in the playoff, you know you didn't pass that first round. So I finished with four points. Uh, with four points that year, and that was actually the year where when we got eliminated. I remember Kevin O did that speech to Mike Comrie, and Mike Comrie wanted to get out of Edmonton after because that was the speech when he singularly uh, pointed out that he was responsible for this loss in the first round, and then it was the divorce between uh, Comrie and the Oilers. But yeah, that was the year that uh, that I did so. And it's funny because when I do the trivia question sometimes, my radio show people are like, uh, that's impossible. But again, <laughs> you know. That's out there, right? So it's not like I can lie about it, as you can see. I was tied up in points with Sean Orkoff with uh, with four. Fair enough. So, so George, this this podcast is brought to you by uh, Get Sauced and Sherwood Ford. And the boys over at Sherwood Ford were so excited to hear you were coming on the podcast, and they wanted to know uh, of all your teammates that you ever played with, who was the loudest, the chirpiest kind of guy on the team? Who was who was your loudest teammate you ever played with? The loudest teammate I've ever played with? Yeah. Um, Jeremy, Ro- Jeremy Roman. Okay. By far. Jeremy Roman was the life of a party. Um, you know, he, uh, and actually, I would tell you myself because I'm pretty obnoxious and annoying, <laughs> uh, but I can't. So, you ask me what's, uh, what's the biggest, because if you ask me, I think that I play with everybody with uh, George, he, he never stops. He's crazy. He's insane. He's so hyperactive. But in terms of looking at teammates, that would be, it was Ronick. Life of a party were really good friends when I played in Phoenix with him, and we're still really good friends today. George, how important is it to have a guy like yourself in the dressing room that kind of keeps things light when maybe there's a dark cloud hanging over or something like that? 
A guy like yourself that can keep things light and kind of have some fun and joke around and keep the boys light on their toes. How important is that in the dressing room? There's always somebody like that in each team because the pressure of winning and, and everything that you're doing, you need to laugh sometimes. And the thing is, very special sport is pressure. You know, the job comes with pressure of winning, pressure from the media, pressure from the fans, pressure from the coaches, pressure from everywhere. If you don't perform, you're not going to play. And if you don't play, you're not going to be here. If you're not going to be here, you might not resign. You might be out of a job, and the car might be done. And that's pressure. So because of that constant pressure that you have every single day, um, sometimes guys like that, and, and, and everything as a, a guy like that that makes guys laugh, and, and you make fun of them sometimes and stuff like that, and it's important because it keeps things lighter sometimes. It, it, it takes the pressure off, and you're laughing at time. And it's so important to have because, you know, it's, it, Alleviate that pressure that you feel every day in and out of, uh, of playing uh, during uh, a hockey season. Another thing I wanted to ask about, and this has really nothing to do with hockey a lot. One of the movies I love more than anything is Goon. So I was really excited when I got to see you in that movie. And and I'm just curious what that was, what that experience was like for you. What was it like to be in a major motion picture like Goon? Well, it, it, it was awesome because, first of all, I got to know really good that uh, Josh Faber and Sean William Scott. And just so you guys know, for that movie, Sean, uh, Josh Faber actually trained to learn how to skate. But Sean William Scott didn't so much. So he had a double that did most of the skating when Josh Faber was doing most of it. When I was fighting with Sean William Scott, actually, because his balance was so bad, with my right arm, I was holding him up <laughs> because he would fall. Because he would actually fall. It was the hardest thing ever. And also, when we were fighting, like, the, the, the fighting, like, the shadow, when you fight like that in a movie, a fighting movie, when you throw a punch, you got to be, like, a couple inches to the face so it looks real. Because it was always out of balance, sometimes it would punch me for real. <laughs> and, and the first time, he surprised me because I didn't expect to get a real punch. And he was like, and then he laid on the ice right away after that punch. And, and he's like, Chase, please don't hit me, don't hit me, don't like that. <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. And I wasn't mad because I knew he didn't meant to. But it's funny because I had to actually brace myself with him because he, uh, he would have, sometimes I would actually get a punch for real. When I fought Leo Schreiber, what was unreal with him? Before we fought, he knew everything about me, about fighting and everything. He said, how is that? And he said, to be more in turn with the boss way with his character, he actually watched a lot of my fight to actually know the mentality that we would have to have. But in my mind, I was like, well, maybe he studied the wrong guy because I didn't like it. And I was always laughing and smiling before a fight. So <laughs> I'm not sure if that was the right guy to study to do this because I don't think that I'm the typical, like, behavior of a tough guy that had it because, you know, I didn't like drinking. I didn't like partying. I didn't never do drugs. I never, and a lot of guys, did that, but did the job, they did this to take the anxiety out of their mind. And me, it was the opposite. It was mostly charity work that was getting me. Charity work was helping me with the fighting because every time I go to hospital and I see a kid that was fighting for their life, when I was fighting and I saw the anxiety, I would think back of that kid that I just visited and I'd be like, that kid would rather be on the ice fighting someone in the NHL 
the refinery for his own life. That's how I was able to fight the anxiety that I had every time I got into a fight. And, and then I was able to cope with that to just, as tough as it was, to realize that I was still in a lucky position to be on and, and not letting the anxiety take the best out of me. That's incredible. I think I think that's a really important thing that you're ending off on that not enough people kind of recognize what it's all about. And I love hearing you have the charitable angle to that story as well. Uh, actually, actually, let me give you guys an anecdote in terms of, of, of charity work. And I think outside of hockey, the best thing that happened to me, Remington, is talking about charity. This, this story is, is something that, 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 that it's really important to share. And I think if people are listening to this, they can make it this could make a difference. It would be awesome. It be so different. Is that I was really uh, involved with the Falling uh, Children Hospital in Nemeton when I was down there, when I was in Nemeton. And, and the nurse, they had my phone number. And, and when the kids wanted a visit, they would call me and I would go to a kid. And I remember one time I was in Calgary and the nurse called me and it's like, can you come back to Edmonton because the there's this kid called Jordan, Jordan Klein. He has muscle dystrophy and he has a couple hours to live. So I was in Calgary and I remember, even though I just got in on vacation, and how much was I to go to vacation in Calgary? And actually, the real reason I was going there to see a girl because I would never go in an <laughs> for, for vacation. So I was going to see a girl. So not a vacation. Still go in Calgary. So I drove back to Edmonton to the Saudi hospital to go to Jordan Klein. And when I got there, family was there because they had a couple hours to live. And when I got in that room, you know, the goal when you go see a kid that I don't have much time left to live, what you have to do, you have to be kind of try to be listening, try to bring a smile to his face. So then they could remember that his last couple hours he was able to smile, he was happy. And, and you know, and, and you try to bring that joy before obviously the hard time would come. So I was there for a while and I chatted with them and I saw him and, and you know, I made him smile and, and, uh, yeah, I spent some time there and stuff. And when I left, I wish everybody, you know, like the strength and, uh, you know, my, my, my thoughts and, and all that stuff. And, and I remember a couple of weeks later, and I still have that article. Um, there's a letter that come out of the journal, and it came out from, from the aunt of Jordan. And when I read that article, um, and the reason why I took it, because everybody stuck on me, and I said, did you read the, George, did you read that? Did you read that? It was in the column section with fans that actually write, Stuff and sometimes they would keep some and, and publish them. She was talking about my visit when I went to see Jordan Clem about an angel that came to visit Jordan and how because of that visit it got them a week longer. And I don't know if you know this, but there's no machine in the hospital that actually could do this. But she says that because of the emotional boost that Jordan got when I got to visit him, it got him a week longer. And obviously, I'm no god or anything like that. I was a fighter that pushed a park for a living. But at that time, I realized how important it was, charity work, how important it was to visit children. And I realized how big the impact you could have with kids because a single visit like that did that boost. After I saw that, I did as much charity work that I could because I was so thankful about the fact that God gave me a chance to play in the NHL. What was I doing in return? One of the sons that was sick, if I had that effect on him, how many effects on how many kids can I have? So after that, it changed my life. And everywhere I've ever been, I've always utilized hospital visits everywhere I've ever played. In Montreal, when I was there, I had a, I had a charity person assigned to me 
with a schedule that would do stuff four or five times a week. I remember when I played in Edmonton, they actually have to put a rule to stop doing charity work when playoff time comes. They were telling me to slow down because they were saying that I was doing too much. And in my mind, I was never doing enough because I wanted to make a difference because that day, what I was able to do with a single visit when I read, I wanted to have that impact every single day of my life. And, and that's why also when the earthquake happened in Haiti, I went back there and I helped rebuild the great Southern Hospital in Haiti. That's why today I'm a spokesperson for the China, Shriners Hospital and I do so much with kids. Kids are a future of tomorrow and hockey puts you in the platform when you could do stuff like this. And those are the things that I'll never forget in my career because this is much more important than a fight that I did that got you to entertain people that watch a fight while they're sitting on the couch drinking beer and eating chips. That was real life situation. And that's the thing that I've done in my career that I'm, in, that I'm the most proud of than any games or any fight or anything else that I might have done in the world of hockey. Well, that's an incredible story, George, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. And just from everybody here at the table and everybody in Edmonton, I want to say thanks for everything that you've done in this community. Even after you left the Oilers, the fact that you're still as engaged in Edmonton as you are is pretty incredible. And I think that it's pretty special for people to get to see you as often as they do. And I also want to tell everybody that's listening to this podcast to go check out georgelarock.com and find out everything that George is up to georgelarock.com that has all his business works, that has all his charity works. It's got everything he's got going on on there. So George, I want to say thank you from all of us for your time. It's been very, very generous to spend an hour with us here this morning. And I just want to end off on one with one last question. And I'm hoping for a good answer. Do you think the Edmonton Oilers can make the playoffs this season? Yeah, of course they could. Because they're only three points behind the, the last spot. But when they look at that, uh, you know, they're not that far off. So a couple of the games and things uh, things, uh, things could go wrong, like could go in the right direction. The only thing, though, that's going to be really important is that I know that even though there's no GM right now and Gretzky is a, is a GM by Antrim, I think that they need a move. They need something right now to, to change the energy in that dressing room. And that next move is going to be really important because I think the next trade that they're going to make is going to dictate if yes or no they're going to make the playoff. I do not want to believe in my heart that they're going to make the playoff two years in a row. It doesn't make sense. It's impossible. I think they're going to pull it through. They're going to find a way to do so. And uh, they're going to have a really, really strong, uh, strong, uh, like, uh, like a uh, strong couple of games right after the All-Star game. It's really important. They know what's at stake right now. And often when you, you, you fire the GM, change something in a dress room. And I know that, and I know a lot of guys in that dress room, and, they, and believe me, they want to be there. They want to be there. They want to win with the others, and they're proud of it. And I know that they're going to find a way this year because I just can't imagine them missing them again, and I think that they're going to find a way. Well, Big George, uh, we can't say thank you enough for coming on and you know instilling a little bit of faith and hope back into this uh, fan base. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Anytime, guys. Got my number. Thanks for having me. That was awesome. Perfect. Thank you very much, George. You're welcome, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Fuck. What an episode. Feeling emotional right now. I want to thank our friends at Sherwood Ford, the giant. I want to thank our friends at Get Sauce for making that possible. 
that is probably going to be one of the best days that I can remember. That was a hell of a conversation, boys. All right, that's going to do it for our best of episode. I hope you enjoyed reliving some memories of the Oilers Nation radio podcast. And uh, if you're a new listener, I hope you enjoyed catching up on some of the things you might have missed. Can't wait to talk to you next week when I promise you power will be back up at Nation HQ and we will have a brand spanking new fresh podcast for you. Thanks for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.